Well, good morning. morning. Our passage today is Romans chapter 5, verse 1 through 11. I want to encourage you to turn there and let's stand as we acknowledge that this is the Lord's holy, inspired, authoritative word. Romans 5, 1 through 11. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that our suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were weak, Still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were sinners... We were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. It's the Lord's word. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this glorious news that we hear in in chapter 5. And I pray that you would help us to understand it, to apply it, to to rejoice in it. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, last week we learned from Romans chapter 4 that we are justified by faith alone, just as were the Old Testament saints, and like all of us, Abraham, David, they were sinful men, and these two, and every other great man or woman of faith in the Old Testament Noah, Moses, Ruth, Esther, Daniel, Job, you name them, your favorites, all fell under the condemnation. They all fall under the three chapters of Romans that we read in these early weeks together. Because Paul says that all have sinned. None seek after God and desire God. Had it not been for the Lord's intervention in Abraham's life, for example, he would have died an ungodly pagan man. But God, according to his own purposes, his own plan, he brought Abraham out of Ur, and God wanted to make out of him a nation that would serve him. So Abraham was the man whom he chose to be the founding father of Israel. And as we move into Romans 5, we find Paul's conclusion to to our study from last week. He says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And that one sentence not only sums up the central teaching of Romans chapters 1 through 4, but it presents justification by faith as a blessing to those who believe. Not just to the Jew, but also to the Gentile also, Paul would say. Every person who has fallen short of the glory of God but places their faith in Jesus Christ, has been declared innocent from all charges that are justly and righteously brought against them, and they have peace with God. What does that mean? 
Well, when most people think about peace, they think about the end of conflict or war, and that's certainly part of the concept. Even here in our passage in verse 10, it says that while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. So before Christ dramatically changed our relationship to God, we were at war with him. More accurately, though God was at war with us, he was our enemy and we were his enemy due to our rebellion and sin. It's at this point I think most people miss the meaning of this aspect of peace. Most will inevitably say, I've never been at war with God. I've always at least liked the concept that there might be a God. In fact, if you had asked me, even before becoming a Christian, I would have said that I thought God existed. Unfortunately, we have to remember what we've learned in Romans chapters 1 through 3. Paul wrote that before God intervened in our lives, we did not desire, we did not pursue, we didn't want God in any way. We suppressed the truth of his existence, chapter 1. We rebelled against his will. We ran from him at every opportunity. What is suppression and rebellion against a king if not war? And then the next response usually is, well... Now, wait a second. I was a religious person. I was concerned about what God thought. Certainly, you don't think that I was at war because we think of raising up weapons and trying to do harm to someone. You don't think I was at war with God. Well, that response also misses the point. Things often appear different than the way that they actually are. So my helping out my neighbor may appear to be selfless and generous, but the reality of my motive may be something entirely different. In fact, as we learned, if we are not believers, Romans 3 says that it is always something different. It may be that I want my neighbor to think more highly of me. It may be that I want to have no conflict with my neighbor. It may be that I want something in return. It may be that I want to escape the turmoil of a struggling marriage and get out of the house and do something. It may be any number of things more subtly self-centered. But even that isn't fully the relevant issue. The real issue is not that we were at war with God by placing our own desires or wills in a superior position to his. Like I said, a more accurate statement is to say that God was at war with us. And so what we see here on this next slide as James 4, 5 says, whoever, therefore, wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. That's different, isn't it? Because we each became a child of God's kingdom. God was our enemy, whether we were consciously his enemy or not, and his plan was this. We were so much his enemy, and he was so much at war with us that someday he would have condemned us to hell. And that's how much God was at war with you and me. The Bible says that he was patiently storing up his wrath against us. And I know that that might sound harsh because we don't like to think of God as anything but loving. And yet, do we just find sins in hell? No, we find sinners. Sin cannot be tied up and thrown into a fire. I can certainly anticipate the next obvious question. As Christians, we sin. Is God still at war with me? 
If he's not just at war against sin, but against sinners, I'm still a sinner. What does that mean about me? The answer is no. Because of what we learned at the end of chapter 3 and into chapter 4. Even though you were a sinner, God justified you, declared you righteous by his grace through belief in his son. He declared you to be righteous. Even though you continue to sin, what Romans foretold us is that God has already wiped your ledger account clean. He has delivered his verdict once for all 2,000 years ago and Christ suffered God's wrath and penalty for your past, present, and future sins. But know this, if you were lost still, if Christ's righteousness were not imputed to you, God would still be at war with you and you would one day suffer wrath and judgment. And peace means even more than just the end of God being at war with us. In the context of the Old Testament, peace also means the well-being and blessing to the godly person who is favored by God. So for example, we read this in Ezekiel 34.25. I'll just read it to you. I will make with them a covenant of peace and banish wild beasts from the land so that they may dwell securely in the wilderness and sleep in the woods. And I will make them and the places all around my hill a blessing. I will send down the showers in their season. They shall be showers of blessing. And the trees of the field shall yield their fruits. And the earth will yield its increase. And they shall be secure in their land. And know that I am the Lord when I break the bars of their yoke and deliver them from the hand of those enslaved them. I hope you heard those words. When God says, I will make a covenant of peace with them, it's not just an end of hostility, it's not just an end of war, but it's actually God moving on behalf of his people, saying, I will bring showers of blessing. I will have the work of their hands increase. There will be a fruit of their harvest. They shall be secure because I will be with them. I will deliver them. I will provide for them. They will no longer be consumed with hunger and and suffer the reproach of the nations. They shall know that I am the Lord. And that they, this is what the rest of Ezekiel 34 says, that they, the house of Israel, are my people, declares the Lord God. And you are my sheep, and I am your God. That's what peace means. I will bless them. And in the New Testament, we learn that every promise is yes in Jesus Christ. But look at verse 2 of Romans 5. There's even more good news. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Now, this was quite revolutionary, really, to an Israelite, frankly, who had been raised on a works righteousness-based system. We stand in grace alone. Stand, it, it seems like a weak position in a sense. It's a humiliating or humbling description as if our only presence before God is by his mercy and that there's nothing 
that we can do to keep there, to get there. And it's certainly not what the Israelite believed, nor is it what any other world religion says. All would argue that man, by living up to a religious code or some ethical standard, earns the right to stand before God with a pat on the back. At a minimum, once he's standing there before God, he would have to do something to stay there. That's what all of the world's religions say, but that's not what Paul says. We not only came into God's presence by his grace and mercy in justifying us, but we also stand there in the present and will continue to stand there in the future because of his grace in preserving us. Not only might that seem humiliating since there's nothing that we do, but it seems too easy. And so invariably you encounter this next question, which is, you mean to tell me that you can become a Christian and just do anything you want? Doesn't God's continued good favor at least partially depend upon our obedience? And the answer is a little complicated by what we learn in the book of James because our faith is evidenced by obedience. Our, faith, our love is, is shown and displayed by, by obeying God. And this leads many people to say that God saves us, but then our works keep us. But that's actually not what James says nor is it what Paul is saying here in Romans 5. Everything, our justification, our sanctification, and one day our glorification is all on account of in and through Jesus Christ. In verses 3 through 5, we read not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, character produces hope, and hope doesn't put us to shame. See, Paul in verse 2 said that we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. That's clear and easy to understand, I think. But here in verse 3 it says, not only that. Not only that, but there's something that's so remarkably great about having peace with God and standing in grace before his throne that we not only rejoice at the glory of God in doing all of this, but we rejoice in our sufferings. And that's not so clear. Because... None of us like discomfort or or misery. But suffering, according to Paul, produces things that we do like. It produces endurance. It produces good character. It produces hope. Those are good things. And so sufferings and trials end up, as the New Testament describes, are a gift to the church because they help the saints to understand and become more like him. Help us all in that regard. It's part of the sanctification process that results in Christ presenting his church without blemish to the Father in Ephesians 5. And so she rejoices. She rejoices because God preserves her, preserves us, the church. We rejoice. The early church father Ignatius once wrote, let what will will come upon me only so that I may obtain Jesus Christ. Hebrews 11 describes how the Old Testament saints endured much suffering, even death, because they had faith in better things. Well, the apostles, when they were brought before the Sanhedrin, and I'll try and get this for us, with this new system. When they were brought before the Sanhedrin, according to Acts 5, 
41, left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. You can see that the the bride is to rejoice even in the midst of suffering. Paul says in Philippians 3, 7, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Jesus reminded the people in Matthew 19, everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my namesake will receive a hundredfold, inherit eternal life. Who wouldn't give up all of all things to receive every heavenly blessing through the Son, including what Paul mentioned. Paul just lists a few things. Endurance, character, hope. But when you go back to remember the showers of blessings, when you remember that every promise is yes in Christ, when you remember that you will have an eternal inheritance through Jesus Christ, that you will be with God forever, Well, that's amazing, isn't it? As Proverbs 3, 13 through 18 says, Blessed is the one who finds wisdom and the one who gets understanding. For the gain from her is better than gain from silver and her profit better than gold. She is more precious than jewels and nothing you desire can compare with her. Long life is in her right hand. In her left hand are riches and honor. Her ways are ways of pleasantness, and all her paths are peace. She is a tree of life to those who lay hold of her. Those who hold her fast are blessed. And that's just one blessing that comes in Christ, this blessing of wisdom and understanding. And you may be wondering why Paul inserts Verses 3 through 5 in this discussion of peace and standing in grace. And I want to explain that he does so because he is trying to explain how even the difficult times of life are now blessed because of our new relationship to the Lord through Jesus. God redeems everything. Every moment. Even the hardest trial plays its part in refining us and bringing us joy. You see how he can say that? Not only that, but think of the worst thing, suffering, trial. Even that, we rejoice. And then Paul concludes the section with some powerful truths. Look at them starting in verse 6. While we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. And then he describes about what we would do if it were us and asks us by implication to compare to what God did for us. Why does he do this? He says this because he wants you to continue to rejoice, to appreciate exactly what God has done, to both prove himself righteous, which is what Romans 3 and 4 were about, to prove himself righteous, consistent with his character, and to save you from your sin. You were God's enemy, but you were also dead in sin with no desire to stop rebelling against God. Consequently, there was no ability to stop. And that's what Paul means by being weak. But then comes the amazing part. Despite the fact that God is at war against his enemies, he loves the righteous 
How do you get from being one to the other when the enemy has no ability to stop? Well, what does Paul say? He says, God loves the righteous so much that he died for them when they were an abomination to him, when they were his enemies. God loved what we would become. And that is why Paul says that God demonstrates, not demonstrated, his love. You see, as we read these verses this morning with understanding minds and we comprehend what Christ did, as we, as we bask in these thoughts of peace and grace, even in the midst of the worst moments, being able to rejoice, God is demonstrating right now through all of that his love to us, proving that while we were sinners, he died for us. Children, would you give up your life for your parents? That's a hard question, especially for some of you younger kids. Hard to even imagine what that would mean. But I believe you older children probably could imagine the possibility. And your parents, I'm confident, would give up their lives for you. Jesus says that that's to be expected. Most of us will die for someone that we love. We'll even sometimes die for someone that we respect. There are some of you who might even give up your life to a person who is not a part of your immediate family. But would you die for someone that you didn't like? For someone with whom you were at war? You probably wouldn't. And that's true of me too as I think through and and try to go through that whole spectrum of going, okay, even with somebody I'm at war with. But that's what God did. And guess what? As believers, we are told to model at least that type of love in that Christ said we are to love our enemies. And they wouldn't be your enemies if they were your friends. As believers, the world has become your enemy, just as it is God's enemy. And David writes in Psalm 139, 21-22, Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them as my enemies. Well, Friends, that too is a part of the Christian life in the sense that we are jealous for God's name and reputation. We want God to reign. We want him to be just. We should despise the fact that God's holy character is blasphemed by our world and our culture, right? That should should cause us heartache. And we should call for God's justice. But here is an important point. We are not to just remain like that. Jesus says, love our enemies, which means we are to give up ourselves on their behalf just as God sacrificed himself on our behalf. How do we do that? Well, Jesus sacrificed himself by fulfilling the gospel, and we are called to sacrifice by proclaiming it. So as your enemies ridicule you and blaspheme God, call the gospel foolishness, you are simultaneously to be praying for God's justice and yet praying for that person. That's a hard balance to keep. 
It's a hard balance to keep. Why do we do that? Because God may have died for them as well. After all, he died for you. And Paul's been trying to say, you're not any more special than that person. It was because of God's mercy, God's grace. He may not yet have utilized, you know, used you, used whatever to plant the seed, to bring the harvest of that particular person to his kingdom. So we go back to verse 1. And we, I ask you this question. Does Paul saying that we have peace with God sound even better to you? Because no one else would have died for an enemy. Even if we look at our own lives, we admit that we wouldn't do it, but God did that. He did it while we were sinners in rebellion against him. He did it when we were weak, could not do anything for ourselves. He not only declared peace with us, but he blesses us with every heavenly blessing. You didn't do anything to change God's feeling towards you, and yet God is no longer your enemy. You live under God's covenant of peace. You stand in grace before his throne with everything in your life redeemed. Every difficult moment. Do you see how you are getting in Romans 5 something that is so amazing? Look at Colossians 1.21. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach. Before him, it just keeps getting better and better because God is committed not only to blessing you, but to improving you, to presenting you holy and blameless and above reproach. And that's how God sees you at this point, because you are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And that leads to one more question that might come out of this passage. Everything seems too good to be true. And that often leads a person to ask, isn't there a catch? You know, what, what is this telling me from the standpoint, is there some way for me to fall out of grace? Is it possible that God would change his mind, particularly if I do something bad? So maybe the person acknowledges, we had a similar question earlier, maybe a person acknowledges that God isn't actively at war even though I continue to sin, but couldn't I do something so bad that, that, that I would tumble out of this position because it's such, such a, a glorious, undeserved position. Well, that's where the final verses of our passage come in. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. So what Paul is saying here is if your salvation depended upon you keeping the rules, you know as well as I do that not just you, but all of us would have fallen out of that grace a long time ago. 
Jesus' high priestly work maintains this application of grace. We see it at work in Luke 22 when Jesus says to Peter, Peter, Satan has desired to have you, but I have prayed for you. That is what Jesus does for us. Paul wrote to Timothy in 2 Timothy 1.12, I know whom I have believed. I am convinced that he is able to guard it, to guard what he has entrusted to me. In Hebrews 10, we read these words, And by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sin. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sin, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet, for by a single offering he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. Did you hear that? By one offering, Jesus perfected for all time, forever, those who are being sanctified. Who are those being sanctified? You, me, those who stand in grace before God's throne, those who are being made holy and blameless and without reproach, the ones who are at peace now with God. And the author of Hebrews says that by that one offering, by the cross, that's past tense, by his death, Jesus perfected us forever. There's nothing that can remove you from God's grace. There was nothing incomplete about Christ's work on the cross. He does not have to be crucified over and over again as you continue to sin. Instead, in God's eyes, you have been declared righteous, past tense. You have been perfected forever, even as you are being made holy and sanctified. So what would remove us? How could we fall from grace in light of all of that, right? And so, later in Romans chapter 8, verse 31, can you go ahead and advance that for me? Paul writes, what shall we say to these things? What's our response to all of this great news? If God is for us, who can be against us? Put that, in the, put that in the context of what we've been learning in Romans 5. If we're at peace with God, if God is on our side, who is bigger than God that can change that? That's what Romans 8 is asking. And what's the answer? No one. Because the only one that could change things is God, and God is what? God is for us. And so Paul says in the next verse, he who did not spare his own son, who went to that length to die, to send his son to die for you while you were his enemy, giving the, the greatest of all sacrifice, will he not also? With him, graciously give us all things. Everything else is less than that first thing. All other things less than giving Christ his son.
And then Romans 8.33 says, So who shall bring a charge against God's elect? The ones that God is for. The one who God preserved, died for, protects, intercedes for. Who is going to indict us? Who is going to accuse us? You know by now, there may be People try, maybe the devil tries like he did with Job. But Paul concludes in 34, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that who was raised, who is at the right hand of God. The very one who would be your judge is interceding for you. See what Paul is saying? There's nobody there that isn't on your side. The judge who said you were delivered from his wrath and set you free, he's not condemning. He's for you. The one who sits at his right hand is interceding for you and praying for you. So not on your life. There's no higher court than this judge. And so the result of all of that work is that we persevere. We obey. We walk in obedience but we do all of that in the gratitude of exulting in what God has done for us. But let's not forget how even in that. Remember how Paul asked the rhetorical question, if God would give the gift of his son to save us, would he not give us all things, lesser things, to preserve us? Well, what's the most important of those gifts? It's the empowering strength of the Holy Spirit. who works in us to will and to do us good pleasure. Who's working to make us holy and blameless and and above reproach. So not only does God keep those who are his on his side, but he walks alongside of them as a Holy Spirit and he intercedes as their high priest. He has perfected us forever and he is making us holy. And the fact that we is making us holy means that we will fail. We will continue to struggle with the flesh. Paul often said, I do what I would not do. And he'll say it soon because he wants us to realize he understands the questions that we raise. And I hope you can see that a proper understanding, yes, we had some work to slog through Romans 1 through 3. Yes, we had the depressing picture of the the depravity of man and the hopelessness of a situation and the universality of the fact that we all are in rebellion and suppression of God's truth. But but chapters 4 and 5 have now created this full circle and this picture of an overwhelming majesty, glory, and gracious favor of God who is both fiercely wrathful but profoundly loving. So Paul, what he's saying is, if you want to attack your position in God, you're going to have to attack God. You would have to say that he changed his verdict. You would have to attack Christ by saying his work on the cross was inadequate. You would have to attack the Holy Spirit by saying that he is inadequate to enable the believer to persevere and live a life of increasing holiness. You see, Paul wants us to get our thoughts off of ourselves. 
both of our ability to actually earn God's favor, but also our ability to undermine the work of God in our life. It is not about us. It is about God. And that is the point, right? It's been God from the beginning all the time. I told you the news was impossibly good. And so when we get to verse 11 and it says that we rejoice in Christ, do you understand why? The triumphant victory that we have in Christ produces this exuberant, contagious joy. It's a a joy that finally is detached and released from this self-centered focus, this confidence in our own selves, a gratitude for our dependence upon God and the fact that he is for us. And that is what he expects from us, to see the work that he's doing even now to maintain us and will do in the future as he lavishes upon us his love. What an amazing God. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the goodness of your love. Thank you, Lord, that you have have blessed us with every promise being yes in Jesus Christ, that you have not only given us new life and declared peace with us, but Lord, in that covenant of peace, you have committed yourself to work in us, to make us holy, blameless, without reproach, to make the harvest of our work, the fruit of our labor, actually increase in the sense that we are not always frustrated in our, in our work. Lord, you have made things so positive for us that we can even be thankful in the midst of suffering. What an amazing turnaround from where we were. And you've done all of that for your glory. And Lord, how could we say anything else but thank you? It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.